Ladies and gentlemen, it is showtime. Please welcome the team of the Fulhamish Podcast. It's the Fulhamish Podcast, your independent voice of Fulham FC. My name is Sammy James and this is Fulhamish Extra. In today's episode, we're going to be looking ahead to the Leeds game at the weekend. Uh, a very, very big match uh, that may decide where exactly the automatic promotion places are heading and who might be going up to the Premier League. Uh, Dom is going to be chatting to John McKenzie um, from All Stats Are We, a Leeds podcast uh, in just a moment. But also in today's podcast, um, I have David Lloyd with me and we're going to chat uh, about the late Bill Muddyman who sadly passed away in May. Um, David, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Always good to have you on Fulhamish. It's been about 18 months since we, we've had you on the podcast, so uh, nice to get you back on and uh, a, a familiar voice for, for many listeners, no doubt. Uh, yeah, a lot's been happening in 18 months. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, including the fact that I missed more games this season at home before the lockdown than I think in 30 years. So, uh, yeah, priorities change somewhat, but um, bouncing back and uh, let's hope the lockdown comes to a close soon and we can see football as it should be with fans around the pitch. Well, you're looking, we're, we're on Zoom right now, David, and, uh, and you're looking well today. So uh, re- really pleased to see it. And I'm sure many will be um, glad to hear you on the podcast. And uh, hopefully there may be uh, some return of your words in, in the form of two-fifth online. I don't know at some point soon. And, uh, and I'm sure we'd all be really excited to see that. Um, just quickly, David, we'll obviously chat about Bill um, in a second. But um, just your thoughts on, on the match this weekend uh, against Leeds. We kind of got let off the hook a little bit um, after the loss against Brentford and the automatic promotion places are still kind of tantalizingly oh, out of reach for Fulham but a win this weekend and it, it could be it could be game on you took the word out of my mouth they're tantalizing I mean if that isn't Fulham well <laughs> over the years anyway um I didn't think we played that badly I have to confess as I hinted earlier I've been a bit more of an armchair fan uh, this season have been along to a few games and haven't exactly been enthralled at, at, at some of the performances, I have to say. Uh, big exception, I think, the one I was there, the first half an hour was against Middlesbrough. I thought we really were on the front foot and um, it could have been any score. I didn't think it was that sort of scenario at the weekend against Brentford. I thought we gave it a reasonable shot against a, obviously a good side. But I think mm. what we need to sort of factor in this season is that... Um, Everybody seems to suggest that we've got this sort of well-beating squad. Um, personally, I don't think that's quite the case, but also that the division is a bit much of a muchness. I mean, it's as, it's as competitive as ever. And with that elusive prize of getting up to the big time, whether you want it or not, because there's obviously that's a separate debate. Yeah. I, I, I find it amazing, given everything that I've seen this year, that we're still in third place. But the fact remains we are. Yeah. And leads to come it would just just be typical of us lot to, to go to to Leeds and, and get a result but uh we came to, I mean you know as you hinted there just now Sammy that the the results had we had we known about the Leeds defeat you know uh, people that were saying a point would be good against Brentford would have been pretty accurate yeah indeed because uh, that would have not Brentford back a peg and we'd still been in the knocking uh, knocking for the top two places and of course somehow we still are but had Decker Dover-Reed's shot gone in, because I'm going to be 
fairly critical. I think he should have scored it. It was a very... Um, it sat up for him well, didn't it? It did. And it was the, a finisher would have finished it effectively, I think. Mm. But uh, there we are. That was a chance that came and went. Um, another thing, Mitro in previous games, he probably was feeding completely off scraps and yet was managing to pick a goal up here and there from the one chance that he had. He had three half chances, a one fairly decent one, if, I, if my memory calls. And I can't recall a game where we've had that many chances through the centre forward, despite us, in my opinion, not playing him all that well. Mm. Um, so it could have been another result Saturday. But of course, the, the result in the record books is is not 2 And it's the question yeah. of rushing down and going again. Well, I mean... Have you, you've seen a lot uh, over the years and you've seen a lot at, at Fulham and you've seen us rise from the fourth division to the Premier League, get relegated again, European finals, getting promoted again. But of course, behind closed doors, football is definitely something you won't have seen. It probably will give Fulham a bit of an advantage up at Leeds this weekend. It, of course, would have been a cauldron um, going into that game normally if uh, if Leeds and Fulham fans um, were allowed in the ground. What's your thoughts on, on behind closed doors football because it's still surreal I'm still watching it you know a couple of weeks after it started in Germany and I still I still think it the whole thing's crazy I mean the whole world's crazy isn't it so football's the tip of the iceberg. Uh, yeah I, I mean I was listening to the Fulham Supporters Trust podcast last week and mm. I, I managed to sneak in a question whether it was the right time to go back to football at the moment and it it it, it, it was a <laughs> It's a very good discussion that followed from that. Not that the question was particularly good. It was just trying to get everybody involved as much as anything else. I think it, it's the right time to start to get football back. I think that was the general consensus. But it is surreal and it is odd. And clearly with my fanzine and supporters club and that background over the years, I would be coming from a fan's perspective, wouldn't I? And um, mm. by choice or by... Um, things that overtook me I hadn't been able to come to a fair few games this season but looking at it now you know there's this blanket you cannot attend because of this and it does just create this weird atmosphere uh you know you listen to the games with or without the the ground commentary and it is rather like a, a reserve game or something like that mm. where you can you know, and you wonder professional that's what they're being paid to do so they ought to be putting in a show but I, I I guess that's the extra added element. It, it's one of those psychological things, isn't it? That you don't quite know how that affects players when there is a crowd there. Because over the years, we've had uh, scapegoats, too many actually. Um, and, you know, you can see them visibly going into their shells when they get the same, especially when the crowds are that much fewer and you get, um, you know, a direct criticism at a player or a manager. Uh, it's heard all around the ground in, in those circumstances. So to turn that on its head, going to Leeds, which is always a hostile atmosphere, it may well give us the edge. Who knows? But uh, mm. I would doubt that Leeds will be taking it lightly, having lost themselves at the weekend. So whatever happens, it's going to be another uh, of those cup final type things. That it's, going to, it's going to be built up big beforehand. And we've just got to hope that we turn up on the day. Because I thought we gave it a reasonable shot. But I think a little bit more dynamism here and there. And, uh, you know, is one game gone, one game's chalked off, no points. There's a bit more onus on us to get something this weekend now. If we want to continue that, I won't say charge, because it's not that. It's a bit of... <laughs> <laughs> cruel. We're, we're, we're tripping up here and there. Cruel, maybe, yeah. But uh, 
the chance is there. So let's go for it. Okay, right. Well, um, here is Dom chatting to John McKenzie from All Stats Are We uh, ahead of this weekend's match. Hello, my name's Dom Betts and we're looking ahead to Saturday's big clash at Ellen Road against Leeds United. And joining me today is John McKenzie from the All Stats Aren't We podcast. How are you doing today, John? Yeah, really good. It's been a lovely sunny day. I've just done a five mile run and I'm feeling uh, peppy after what was not a great weekend. Yeah, so if we go into the weekend, obviously Fulham Brentford kicked it off. We ended up losing 2 0, and then, you know, that sort of really opened up for West Brom and Leeds. I said if West Brom and Leeds both end up getting the three points on the weekend, that would probably, for me, see the top two race being done. But going into the weekend, and, you know, obviously we know results happened. West Brom drew and both both our teams lost. What what were you expecting from Leeds going into the game against Cardiff anyway, before, obviously, before you even saw the West Brom and Fulham results? Yeah, obviously Cardiff has uh, a certain amount of uh, of a bogey status for us, even in in his even in historical terms. Neil Harris knows how to set up to to frustrate Leeds, and they they sort of went into the game as I expected, sitting deep, sitting in a low block, looking to hit us on the counter attack, and frustrating us in in terms of making it impossible for us to break them down and get into the box and and create particularly good chances. But that said. Even with that in mind, um, you know, we gave away two very, very low chance opportunities, both from mistakes, and we had good enough opportunities ourselves to cancel it out. So it's just the sort of standard loss under Bielsa. And um, I think I would have been more worried had we um, been playing against a team who were more open and we weren't able to really make the sorts of inroads that we usually do. And so I think the game in the weekend against Fulham is going to be really interesting from that perspective. Obviously, me and you have spoken plenty of times, you know, earlier on in the season about how you always thought Fulham were higher than where some some thought they've played. I remember you wrote an article about or did a thread of tweets about Scott Parker and Parkable, some people might call it, just for our victory at Craven Cottage um, around December time. And you know, a lot of Fulham fans were agreeing. So why, when you when you were writing that down, what what was your belief and thinking? Why sort of Scott Parker maybe not getting the best out of this Fulham side? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting one because actually watching the game at the weekend, I thought that over, over the break, Fulham have maybe changed tack a little bit. So maybe my um, criticisms of him might not be quite so stringent as they were. But um, from what I was seeing is that Fulham were sitting deep. Um, they were looking to do sort of fairly ponderous build-up play. And then eventually they'll just suddenly go quite direct and try and hit Mitrovic in the box. And I was talking to Jack Collins uh, of this parish about uh, the Fulham game this morning and um, he was saying look as a Fulham fan I just want them to see to see them do one thing or the other and I, I very much feel like that as a neutral I'd rather they sort of set their team up to be a slow build-up team doing s- slow possession play or be a very direct team sit, sit sort of deep try and be a bit more like Forrest absorb pressure and then and then go for it but it feels as though they were sort of sitting in between those two but against Brentford, I thought um, there was maybe a sign that, that over the break, Parker has actually come out and, and been a little bit more thoughtful about what sort of style of football he wants to play. And let's not forget, he's a he's obviously a rookie manager. He's got a lot of learning to do. Um, but, you know, with this squad, I just think, you know, there shouldn't really be that much of a danger that they were in a title race. And I think the the, the thought experiment that I always do is what, what would if Scott Parker was at Leeds and Marcelo Bielsa was at Fulham, what do we think that the season would have looked like? Um, and I think it would have been quite different. And a lot of people, when you speak about Leeds, is obviously they we look at you look at the team and we know how well Leeds can play. We've seen it over the last two seasons, but it's always been that number nine role. And do you, do you agree with a lot of people say that if you had either Ollie Watkins or Alexander Mitrovic on your side, you'd be about twenty points clear by now? 
Yeah, that's an interesting question because obviously Mitrovic and um, Watkins are very, very different players. I think Watkins would suit our style of play much more. Obviously, um, Patrick Bamford is not necessarily in the team just purely on his finishing ability alone, but is there to... to do link up play in the build up phases. He's a really good presser of the ball. He finds space quite well. Um, and, you know, Ollie Watkins is very similar for, for Brentford. So I certainly think that with Watkins in the team, we would have done that. I don't think uh, Mitrovic is maybe. Um, uh, as he's not as well-rounded enough to really fit in the team. But then if he was at Leeds, then maybe they would set the team up differently and play to his strengths as well. Um, we certainly could have done with someone like Mitrovic at the weekend against Cardiff. But basically it comes down to Patrick Bamford's, you know, 12 goals under his expected goals um, figures, which is just, it's just historically bad. And um, whilst I still reside and pitch my tent on Bamford Island, the fact of the matter is, is that we've been doing enough to win games and because of our finishing, we haven't. Now, there's, there's different accounts of how important finishing is as a skill when it comes to strikers and there's no sense really that some players are good finishers and others aren't it's it's really hard to to actually back that up statistically so um it could just be the case that next season Patrick Bamford has a good season finishing wise and and that's that but it's really really uh, punished us this season and, and it's just got to a point now where I think the fans are just exhausted of the same things happening when it comes to, obviously, Leeds trying to get out of the championship, do you think this season is be or end all? Do you think if Leeds are going to go up, it's going to have to be this season? Yeah, I'm, I'm really quite critical of the way that the club have approached this, to be honest. I think it's a, a really sort of short-termist way of looking at things. And essentially what we've got is an owner who has wanted to get up on a shoestring and has realised that actually the best way of doing that is rather than spending money on players and player wages, you could spend it on a, a good coach and get more out of the players that you've already got, which I think on paper is, is a laudable approach, but it, it very much sort of comes down to whether or not we think that if Leeds fail to go up this season, whether or not we think that there's any sort of longevity in that approach. And I just don't think there are. So it's, it's one of those cases where you kind of think, Yes, it's it's been great. We played fun football, um, but you know it really is. If you look at the squad and you look at the, the sort of curve of where you expect the, the squad to be, even if we go up, um, I'm a little bit nervous that you know it's going to be it's going to be hard to keep up leads in the Premier League um, or get them back to the Premier League if we don't go up this season with the approach that we have. So I, I actually find it quite hard when you see clubs like Brentford who do the the complete opposite approach, which is a really long termist approach to the point where their fans get frustrated because they feel like they'll never get up. Um, I'm a little bit worried that you know we'll just be back at square one if if things don't work out for us this. Season. Season. After the weekend's results, and um, was 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 it even more uh, annoying that you weren't able to get three points against Cardiff? Because I, I I would say that if you were to get three points against Cardiff on the weekend, I would say that it put you too far ahead of Fulham and Brentford to be caught. Or were you were you, were you still fairly sort of worried going into the game? Yeah, look, it, for me, it almost felt, and I think I was especially nervous because of this. It almost felt like a playoff final because if we'd have won that game we would have had, I think, a fairly easy sail through to the end of the season. Um, but, you know, we can't, We simply cannot make things easy for ourselves. And now, the, the, the caveat there is that, you know, a, a team like Cardiff, uh, the sort of team that we are going to struggle against, they are going to play the sort of style of football that is going to emphasise the, the weaknesses in our approach. And, and yes, they required luck, but, you know, they, they took that approach because they knew with a bit of luck they could get the result, and they did. The worry that I have, I think, is, is more psychological now. Um, I think we've... we've 
we've seen Leeds collapse a few times. Um, we saw them do it this season after the result that we had against surprise, surprise Cardiff when we were three nil up and we we conceded three goals and then we went on to a bit of a poor run. Um, and we saw it at the end of last season, we saw it happen in the playoff semi-final against Derby at home. And so the worry for me is not that we aren't playing football that's good enough. I think we are at the moment. My worry is that we that we go into that sort of panic mode again and we don't do the, the basic things properly. And that's where the issue comes rather than from our style of play. When you're looking at the Leeds United side, everyone sort of talks about, you know, Bamford not putting the goals in or everyone, you know, should Calvin Phillips be starting to get in the England setup because of how well he's played this season. What other players in this Leeds United side do you think are so critical to the team but maybe don't necessarily get the plaudits they deserve? I think a lot of Leeds fans would say Stuart Dallas, but actually I'd probably pick the the other fullback, Luke Ayling. I think Luke Ayling has really developed in his time under Marcelo Bielsa to the point of fact now that he almost feels like a, a Bielsa player. I sort of think of him in the same mould as those other players that he's had in his in his teams who've been sort of reinvented by him. So players like Gary Medell and um, players like Javi Martinez, players players like that who I think you you sort of think of them in a very specific way, and then suddenly Bielsa comes along and and. So Suddenly they they are entirely reinvented. I think Calvin Phillips is obviously within that mould because I think a number of Leeds fans only ever really saw him as a number ten at first, and and now he's been reinvented as this sort of number six who is both um, excellent at distribution and breaking up play. So I think I'll say I think I'll say. Um, Ailing. I think there's an honourable mention for Jack Harrison as well because I think the improvement curve on Harrison during his time under Bielsa is is huge. Obviously, there's there's rumours going around that. Obviously, if Pablo Hernandez might be back for the weekend's game, how big of a boost do you think that would be to the site? Yeah, I think it would have been a bigger boost if we'd have had him against Cardiff, precisely because we don't really have anyone with the guile to break down pack defences. Um, but obviously, having him available just makes things a lot easier for us, especially because just off, off, our squad is so thin at the moment. I mean, we, we're in this situation where we were playing Roberts as a as a number ten in our system, and I, ideally, I think Roberts is probably a striker, and so we had our two striker options on the field at the same time which meant that we couldn't then bring on um, a substitute striker after Bamford um, started tiring. And so you just sort of, uh, without Hernandez in the field, whilst he is a really important creative player, he's also integral to the squad depth at the moment. So it will be nice having a little bit more of an option um, as well. Um, but yeah, of course, it's, it's great having him back and uh, the news as well that, that Tyler Roberts is not um, injured as some people thought he was is is going to be quite nice as well. Obviously, we go, if we go back to the reverse fixture at Craven Cottage, it was I think we, me and you have spoken about this game actually quite a few times, and it's it, it was a very weird game because obviously it was a narrow two one victory or yeah two one victory for Fulham that I, I felt like it was probably not even, it's not even up there with probably the top five performances we've put in this season. Yet we were able to beat a very, very strong lead. So what do you think went wrong for Leeds that day? Or do you think it was just one of those days where it was just an unfortunate uh, sort of occurrence of events for the kind? We are very much a game state team. Um, so against Cardiff, we went a goal down against the run of players. We see it anyway. And I think the same is the way it's the same thing happened against Fulham at least as far as we can see it with a with a fairly cheap penalty given away as soon as we go a goal down and the opposition sits a bit deeper we just don't have good enough players when it comes to creativity to necessarily break them down especially with players like you have Michael Hector and Tim Ream now like they that is not a center back pairing that I think is really going to struggle if if Fulham end up retreating at the weekend going a goal up so it's it's a game state thing as soon as we go a goal down the the game changes and 
and we I think become very quickly um, we lose our f- favourite status in that situation. So it will come down to whether or not Leeds can get the goal first, and and if that happens, then um, anything could happen. But uh, it's just going to be an uphill battle if if we concede the first goal. I feel that's quite similar with Fulham as well. I feel like the only game I can really remember is coming back from a goal down to win the game was in the West London derby against QPR earlier on the season when uh, we we went down one or down quite early then we got two goals from a, of all players Abubakar Kamara when it comes to Leeds versus Fulham I wouldn't call us like a bogey team because every team seems to nearly every game seems to end up in a draw but um what what do you think it is with Leeds that they're not necessarily always as easy to get the win over Fulham the one victory that sticks in my mind was I think was maybe a 3-0 victory when Sol Bamba scored at um, at Craven Cottage but apart from that it always feels like it's either going to be a draw or a narrow victory for Fulham yeah I think it's part and parcel of both teams being generally sort of thinking themselves as as big clubs and and so going in to, against a in a game against another so-called big club will will always mean that I think that there's going to be a little bit more tetchiness there in this instance I think again it, it sort of comes down to the fact that at least Leeds fans feel as though because we have Marcelo Bielsa and everyone does talk about us as being a sort of Manchester championships Manchester City or something like that in terms of style of play I think a lot of clubs come out um, determined to sort of break that um, any run that we're on or, or managers come out and they want to be like you know I've been Marcelo Bielsa or I've caused Marcelo Bielsa problems and I think that um, means that, that a lot of clubs sort of do put themselves out against Leeds and you know there's there are stats that's, that sort of back this up particularly last season you know any team that um, beat Leeds would have usually done quite badly the in the following game I don't think it's quite so true this season but you know clubs come out against Leeds and the way that Leeds play if, you, if you're going to match Leeds then you're going to Leave, you, leave yourself out on that pitch and uh, you're going to take a lot of energy doing so. So I think um, the combination there really of just sort of like traditional ideas about about the club um, and the fact that Leeds are actually playing quite well at the moment. So I think clubs want to want to, to cause a problem. So on the balance of that, I think that's why the, the Fulham-Leeds games have always been a little bit um, more tetchy, I think. If, we, if Fulham looking at um, our game on the weekend and where we necessarily didn't play that well was probably down our left hand side. Joe Bryan had a fairly a fairly poor game, but but he, but he hasn't had necessarily as many great games this season. What do you, do you think Bielsa is going to look at that and saw that Joe Bryan was often moving inside a bit and tried to utilise Leeds' right flank? I think well, we set up fairly standard anyway, regardless of who we're playing against, which is part of the problem. You know, the, the you know, there's a lot of managers who'll come out and say, well, you know, Leeds are very predictable, um, and there's there's I think there's an element of truth in that. Insofar as Marcelo Bielsa has uh, a particular style of play that he thinks you know you do that, and Plan B is doing Plan A but better. So yeah, we will we will build up on the right hand side. That's generally what happens. If we have Hernandez on the right, then he sits a little bit deeper, a little bit um, more central, and the play will sort of dictate around him because he's the most creative player. The same thing will happen with um, Helder Costa if he's in that position and we'll, we'll build the ball up there and then we'll try and look to get um, switches of play into the opposite side. Um, one thing that we've uh, into Jack Harrison and then try and get Harrison um, isolated against fullbacks with the support of a, of a, of a fullback himself. But um, one thing we we saw a little bit actually against Cardiff, although this was because Cardiff were sitting deep, was we were seeing switches of play into um, Helder Costa as well, which is something we haven't seen as much. But I do think, yeah, we are going to attack um, the, the fullback positions because that's where we, we, we do attack. And um, yeah, I don't know who you're going to have as, as right back. You had uh, Dennis Adoy this weekend, didn't you? But- 
Yeah, I'd, 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 I'd assume they'd continue saying if it's not a doy, maybe Cyrus Christie will come in. But I presume with with no midweek game, he'd probably he'd probably stick with the same back four. Yeah, and I think that we will probably target both of those positions, um, although in different ways. One trying to get Harrison in space so that he can run at a doy or Christie, whoever he's there facing, and then the other one just being build up play around Brian and just trying to get the ball in behind him so that we can get balls crossed in and obviously that's the way that you conceded at the weekend uh, that first goal from uh, Saeed Benrahma um, just coming from that flank so yeah I think you, you should expect quite a lot of activity in those areas. When it's for Fulham trying to maybe expose Leeds weaknesses what would you say is Le- Leeds's biggest weakness if you're looking about if you're looking just sort of solely on what happened against Cardiff? I think our biggest weakness is our inability to break down deep defences and that's why I'm so interested to see how uh, Fulham play because I felt that Fulham were really quite direct against Brentford at the weekend and I feel as though you're going to be quite direct against us this weekend too um, and I just kind of I just kind of think if you played uh, a, a quite patient game where you sat deep and then tried to sort of catch us on a semi counter attack um, using Mitrovic as a hold-up player rather than a player getting in the box I'm sure you would cause us problems um, and but I don't think that's how you'll play um, so I'm actually feeling a little bit more confident in terms of the, play, the the style of play that will be played this weekend than I was about last weekend, which isn't to say that I don't think that we could lose. And I certainly don't think that anything is guaranteed in that respect. But I do think it's a sort of form of game that will suit us more. Um, in terms of where we're weak, as I've said, because we have Harrison as a sort of classic winger and we really try and support him with the, with the, the left back, we concede a lot of goals down the left-hand side and I'm sure you will focus your attacking down the right as well. Um, so that will be, I think, the best uh, mode of uh, attack that you'll have. But like I say, the, our biggest weakness is um, it, teams that can sit deep and can counter-attack and be efficient and, and score goals and then get that goal ahead and, and then we're, we're chasing um, from that point onwards. With it being behind closed doors and everyone knows how good the atmosphere can be at Ellen Road, do you think that is going to play a part? Or do you think actually, if we're looking at Man City's games and a team that plays this style of football, that actually being behind closed doors might actually work in the favour of the t- of the teams you play in the way they do? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't have any data to support me either way. There's a lot of Leeds fans that think that Leeds struggle at home because the crowd gets on their back. And that's definitely, there's definitely a sort of... Um, uh, atmospheric aspect to Ellen Road in that you know the, the 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 ground can be absolutely rocking one minute and then if something goes wrong it can be silent the next. But I do agree with you that the training ground atmosphere will probably help Leeds because they play a lot of eleven versus eleven games in those sorts of situations and so it may just help help them to settle down and just sort of get into the rhythm of of playing like they usually play without anyone around. So um, yeah, I think. It's it's going to be interesting to see what the tempo of the game takes because I was I was actually pleasantly surprised by the the tempo of the of the Fulham Brentford game at the weekend um, and I hope that we see a similarly um, sort of upbeat and and positive game this weekend. So if we if one more question going into the game on Saturday, what's your prediction out of it? <sighs> I hate giving predictions, but. Um... You, you, it could go. It could go either way. I'll give. I'll give a prediction on how it could unfold. Like I said, if you guys come out and you press really hard from the from the for the first fifteen minutes, which is what you did against Brentford, if you can pick up a goal in that in that first fifteen minutes, then I would have you as winning or at least drawing. Whereas I think if we can ride that storm and then maybe um, 
get a goal in the first half after that, then I would have us down as, as winning. But I think it will be a close uh, run thing and it will be it'll be either one one or maybe maybe one nil to us or two one to us. So that's as close as you'll get as a prediction from me. If you enjoy Fulhamish and listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please consider giving us a positive rating and review. It really helps us to reach new Fulham fans across the world. If you don't use Apple but want to give us a review Head to the Fulhamish Facebook page and give us a rating there instead. Thank you. Welcome back to the Fulhamish podcast. Sammy James here and I'm joined by the founder of There's Only One F in Fulham, David Lloyd. David, how you doing? I'm good. I, I should just say co-founder in case Dave Preston is watching, but he did oh. after six. But um, oh. <laughs> well, <laughs> the other 29 and a half years or whatever it is. Uh, yeah, that's me. <laughs> you've, ser- you've certainly been fairly important been to, the pro- to the production of the magazine, just, uh, just a little bit. Um, yeah. So we wanted to get you on today, David, um, to talk about a man that you knew very fondly, Bill Muddyman, who, who sadly died in early May at the age of 82. Um, you obviously... I uh, did some words for for the supporters trust on the website which, which were which were beautiful and eloquent as you'd expect and I, I wanted to do a bit of, of the podcast on on Bill and and his significance at Fulham because I think there are a lot of supporters like myself who you know weren't really around in the 80s and 90s and We've grown up in the good times of Fulham. We, we've only really known success. Okay, yes, there's been a few seasons here and there, but we've never really known our club to be under any kind of actual fear of going bust. And there were some really, really dark times for Fulham. And of course, um, Bill was the man kind of pulling the strings to, to make sure that Fulham continued today. So I wanted to get you on just to talk about the, the story of Bill, what he achieved at Fulham, uh, and of course, um, some of your personal memories of him uh, as a friend and, and someone that you um, you worked alongside as well. So um, maybe it's, 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 in, it's a good place to start just to kind of try and do a bit of the backstory. I know that it's it, we could be here for five hours if we went into all the specifics of it, but just how close Fulham became to going out of existence or becoming Fulham Park Rangers uh, and what Bill did in the background with, with Jimmy Hill in order to secure that future. Whatever you say, whatever you think, there'd be no Fulham football club today of that. There is virtually no doubt as you, as you hinted there, it was it, the vice chairman, Bill Muddyman, was in fact probably the chairman, but he decided to get the ubiquitous Jimmy Hill as the front's person because of his TV and immense football background. But the, mm. the real problem that we had at the time was we didn't own the ground and plans were to build monstrosity flats all over the place. And it clearly, you know, a lot of money involved and... Um, no surprises about the property company that owned the uh, owned the grounds uh, outlook. They wanted to make some money quick because people will tell you that they've met over the years the people involved and they were decent sorts. Well, they weren't decent sorts to us, us fans, because uh, this was our club that was under genuine threat. Now, when the new board came in in 87, that was just after the Fulham Park Rangers um, business. Uh, that, that And it was largely fans power I suppose that had um, helped to, to, to make sure that didn't happen and in came the new board the real difficulty then was we had to have an element of trust between the fans and the supporters especially when 
as we were leading up to a compulsory purchase order hearing where the council were trying to force by the the, the ground and, and thereby save Fulham Football Club and us, yeah. the supporters, and indeed the club, were putting all their weight behind it. But in a nutshell, over one weekend, everything changed, and that was the club decided to, to do a deal with the uh, property developers to take some money up front with further sizable payments. Now, they're pittance in today's Premier League fees and charges and, and what have you, but back then, the money was, was quite big. We had a £2 million payment, which clearly could have gone to some sort of mythical ground somewhere, but it was um, spent on on players, which didn't really work out so the downward spiral continued but that apart the club were taking us off somewhere else and it was thought at the time that they'd sold us short yeah we had very few fans coming along at the time it was two three four thousand coming along at the time wow and yet within those numbers was a terrific set of people who who did everything and and you've got to put them on the same bar as the as the board because of the sheer effort and hours that they put in. And, and that is often forgotten as well. People people were giving up their front rooms to have, have merchandise from top to, and just to sell money to get a few quid. In the meantime, the club really were, were, were it was a very, very difficult situation because hindsight is a, is a, is a wonderful thing. And here we are looking back, you know, we've had wonderful times. There's been, we've had wonderful adventures. But with Jimmy Hill as, as the front's person, and he was the one that we then subsequently, as, as a supporters club, were having to deal with, he was extraordinarily difficult. It, it, again, it's very difficult to put this into a nutshell, but um, it was just a massive time of uncertainty. And okay. we came desperately, desperately close to losing our club along the way. But with the delaying tactics that the club employed, including that pulling out of that uh, CPO inquiry and uh, managing to get an extra extension to the lease and us hanging on there, lo and behold, the property market collapsed. And yes, it was a bit of luck, but it was vital. And it meant that with the building uh, property company going into liquidation, have Royal Bank of Scotland picking up uh, the uh, the assets, it meant that we had somebody else to deal with. And there was another fork in the road at that juncture where the best case scenario at that stage was going to be a 12,000 or thereabout stadium that was going to be part funded by other buildings, maybe a supermarket, as we've seen in other grounds. So uh, along, so alongside Craven Cottage, there would be another building in the grounds to in kind order of fund to, the in stadium? Order, in order to fund the repurchase of the stadium. So the Putney end might be a Morrison's or something? Uh, it, it, Putney or the Hammersmith end, I don't know, I can't remember now the specifics, but that, yeah. that was the mood and that, that seemed, given where we were um, a few years previously, that actually seemed to be uh, manna from heaven because the club was was actually going to go out of business. That was the route I believe that Jimmy Hill was going for, and like I say, that wasn't anything to be critical about because it was it was a plus. But Bill Muddyman was one of those who I believe saw a little bit beyond that, mm-hmm. and he saw that um, with the opportunity of buying the ground back, that we could, at least in theory, attract a white knight. And mm. again, I don't know how the path went specifically, but he turned out to be correct. And uh, uh, there was a further breakup in the um, in the board with with Jimmy Hill stepping down. And for a brief period, 
uh, Bill Muddin was chairman, and it was he who sold the club to Mohammed Al Fayed. Um, of course, by that point, we'd we'd had an upswing in in the fortunes of the team because in the in the ensuing years we'd got <laughs> we'd nosedived down to ninety first mm. position in, in the whole of the football pyramid, and then Mickey Adams steadied the ship, and at last we had people pulling in the right direction concertedly. And lo and behold, we managed to get promotion. And I've got a... You've got the T-shirt on today to prove it. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Uh, coincidentally, yeah. Bill Buddyman was a little bit ahead of his time then in order to to see the path that football eventually took where wealthy benefactors came in to support football clubs because Mohamed Al-Fayed was one of the first in the country, certainly one of the first foreign um, investors to, to, to come in and, 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 and I know he had a British passport, but yeah. um, to come in to support Fulham. Back in the early 90s, late 80s, there must have been a bit of scepticism when he thought that that would be something that's possible. My suspicions are that he was contacted um, because my understanding is through um, through an, another guy who's passed away, Peter Thompson. My understanding uh, that Peter, who worked as a he was a headmaster at, a, at an influential school, that he'd had an approach because of uh, various sons that came to his school, and I think Peter, with his sporting background, did some refereeing, believe it or not, out in some of these moneyed countries as a something equivalent to a job share or something or, or a, a student swap. He, he, <laughs> he went out and he did some refereeing. And, and I, I don't know the, the, the real niceties, but something happened where, you know, and I, I, I'm going to say the phrase, I think it was the Sultan of Brunei, I think was the, was the connection. And something was raised and he turned out not to be the guy in question. But I think somewhere along the line, that dialogue opened up doors somewhere else to the possibility of this and the possibility of that. Mm. And I think Peter relayed the information back to um, the board. And, uh, you know, Bill must have uh, taken note. Um, it, it just added to the whole extraordinary turn of events from a club that was absolutely out on its feet and... You know, my fanzine had started, as you said, at that time. And two things from that. One was for that CPO inquiry, the club, as part of that deal, weren't allowed to speak about that deal. Now, there was no internet. There was no Zoom. There was no nothing at that time. Yeah. The club barely had a program run by volunteers, pretty much. Uh, no magazines. They weren't allowed to say anything, but there was an independent little voice in the corner that was allowed to say something, and that was the magazine, the two-fifth. And so I did my utmost to relay what I could about information out to the fans. So that, in a sense, cemented the mag, rightly or wrongly. Yeah. Um, but it was just astonishing how there we were, 91st in the, in the setup, and in that fanzine, I, I think I said something along the lines of, oh, we've got people in the top division pulling their hair out because they've lost three games on the spin. I'm saying, well, no, no, that's not a crisis. A crisis is when you're at, at the foot of the setup, you don't own your ground, you've got no reserve team, you've barely got a football to do training with, you haven't got a training ground. You know, Fulham were on their knees and the next stop was going to be oblivion. Yeah. At that point, that board of directors had come in and whichever pathway they took, they made sure that Fulham Football Club 
did not die. And like I say, it's very difficult to pin uh, exactly who did what and when within that situation. Only those guys themselves know. But by golly, they did change it because it was a previous chairman that had sold the grounds to the property developers in the first place. So there was a, a dirty deed done before then. Uh, these guys, whatever you say, had Fulham at heart, and Bill Muddyman certainly had. He'd been coming to Fulham since he was five years old. Uh, didn't know Bill very well in those early days. You know, again, there was this us and them. Um, I did propose to my wife at Bill's chateau. I was. This was one of my questions that I uh, saw. What an amazing story! And it was Michael Gregg, um, current Fulham supporter trust guy back then, a, a supporters club committee member alongside me who either couldn't or wouldn't go to the uh, cottage charts weekend that he'd won he offered it to me so I went along with my fiance and <laughs> under the influence or not of Bill's wine or not and I ended up proposing to to Heather but you know as far as you guys are concerned you're not interested in that what I will say about that weekend I certainly but, am. well I thought that I might be able to sneak a few questions uh, to Bill it just wasn't that easy to do because Bill was the most magnificent host and anybody that's been on one of those jaunts back then will tell you the same thing. Nothing was, was everything was open over to you, but he wasn't open in his discussions about what was going on. And even when there was one juncture where just me and him were in his swimming pool, um, he was tight-lipped, shall we say. Nothing, yeah. nothing, nothing was happening. And I respected that. You know, you had to. This wasn't a time and a place to, to, to do something because that was his private home that we were um, using. I only really got to know Bill that much as a, as a pal, I should say, in, in, in latter years um, after he'd... It must have been a period of about 20 years where we, we didn't speak because I, I'm not in the same circles as Bill. Mm -hmm. uh, he came to the ground a different way, but when he did walk past when I'm flogging the mag, he might be an eyebrow raise or something, it'll be a nod. Um, but he came over at one juncture and said that uh, he, he liked the editorial. He liked something. And um, from then on, we came closer and closer, and I joined him on the George Cohen committee, and he was an absolute driving force for getting the statue for George done. So our paths did cross quite a bit in, in, in latter years, yeah. I mean, yeah, he still remained um, a, a quite devoted Fulham fan. And as you say, he was involved in, in, in the George Cohen statue. And his son, Andy, was also um, quite involved with him in, in, in affairs to do, to, do, to do with Fulham, wasn't he? Yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, staunch Fulham. But there's no questioning about that at all. In fact, he was the one that um, beckoned the Water Club Committee. I was media secretary or something, and yeah. Andy was the secretary, I think. I've got to say that that Supporters Club Committee that we had were absolutely phenomenal. We had a few mm. differences of our own as far as which centre forward we pick and outlooks towards the future of Fulham and this and that. But when the chips were down, they really worked extraordinarily hard. It just was such a different, different time and a different era and we were doing everything that we could it from our hearts and with our heads to try and make sure that Fulham Football Club remained in existence including staging can you believe half-time demonstrations yeah I mean you know 
I, I can't believe I was involved in doing anything like that because the chances of that going belly up because of alcohol, because of anything, just because of one person sparking something. I mean, you've only got to see the dis- disgraceful scenes that are going around in the world today. Things can take a wrong turn for whatever reason. But we got publicity at the time, and publicity was something that we absolutely craved. We had to have that in order for the story of Fulham to get out there. And the fact that we did it at Fulham's a little bit differently got to quite a few people, and it meant that it was not the norm. We, mm. we did our piece. We managed to delay second halves up until the critical point where had it gone any further, the club would have to pay a fine because they didn't have any money. So, And we got play, uh, we got supporters off the pitch. They were incredible times. And I think the... Well, I've, I've spoken to, obviously, Bill in, in recent years, and I think he became quite proud of the way that the fans behaved themselves and, and, and put the, the name of the club forward. In the same way, as I'm saying now, Bill Muddyman was clearly one of the heroes that, that kept Fulham Football Club going. There's no question about that. They did an awful lot, and much of it was unsaid. The exception, of course, was Jimmy Hill, because he would always tell you what he'd been doing, because he did much of what he did for Jimmy Hill, as opposed to yeah. anything or anybody else. And that was the way he was. You had to take it like that. That, that was it. I've got massive... How can, how can you not have respect for Jimmy Hill for what he's done in the game? Of course. However, what a difficult, difficult guy to deal with. Yes. It sounds like Bill was maybe the slightly more reachable one, even though I guess you knew that Bill at his heart was a Fulham fan. And maybe had he not been in the boardroom, he would have been with you guys on the pitch, most likely. Most definitely. Um, and, and Bill was a clever uh, guy because very astute he was in, in making sure that Jimmy Hill was the chairman because his was the face that, uh, that everybody knew. Bill was quite happy to remain in the background. That wasn't his... Is is real na- is nature to be up front, mm. but make no mistake, he was chairman in all but name. I don't know if uh, Jimmy, if he was around today, would would agree with that, but uh, that's how we felt. And the fact that he hung around afterwards because he was on board with Mohammed Al Fayed, that, that picture that was on the FST site of Bill and Andy enjoying themselves at Wembley. I mean, I, I, again, two things. That occasion, and also if you speak to Ray Lewington about the Europa final, he was saying at the time now that getting to the final was a, a, a just reward for the fans that stuck it um, through all the difficult times. That's not to knock people that weren't there, they're too young or whatever it was, but the nugget was that those that had gone through those desperately, desperately difficult times would appreciate the good times that much more just because they had been there when they were trying to collect every five pence into a bucket times changed but yeah bill muddyman remained there throughout he was coming to games right to the end uh absolutely full and through and through uh with his son andy of course and in latter years i can only say that he was supremely supportive to yours truly as well Um, we had a wonderful weekend out in france to interview jean tigana for the Yes. How was how how what how was how was that? I didn't realise that it was Bill at the centre of of arranging that particular that straightforward question. You know, Bill came up. And I just happened to ask because somebody said, "Oh, wouldn't it be good if you could get uh, Jean?" Because I somehow managed to get a few of the quite a few of the leading protagonists in Fulham's recent history involved, and uh, I just happened to ask him, "Have you, have you got 
John's contact details, seeing as they owned vineyards at one point in uh, in the same part of France. Mm. And of course, they were you know good pals, remain good pals. And he said uh, he's quite quite quiet. He's he's wary of media, and I don't think he'd be very comfortable doing it as we're doing today on, on this Zoom thing or, or whatever. Let's go over and see him. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, yeah, yeah, that'll happen, won't it? Well, it did. <laughs> Bill was phenomenal. His partner Linda helped put me and my son Matt up. Um, we went to see John. They say, don't meet your heroes. Well, I mean, surreal again, doesn't, uh, doesn't, you, well, what can you say? You, you're, we went for a meal afterwards down in Cassis, overlooking the beach. Um, as Matt told me afterwards, loads of topless ladies there as well. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, really? You know, I, uh, <laughs> I, I, hadn't, I hadn't noticed. It, it, the whole thing was just amazing because there we were. We're, we're drinking John's own wine because that's yes. and, and he's being treated like royalty because they wouldn't know the Fulham connection. This is Jean Tigana, France. Mm. And there he was, hero, being fated at his favourite beachside restaurants by the staff. We were treated like royalty. I think my eyebrows took a, a while to get back to normal after that because I think I'd been raising them so often and in surprise to my son across the, the table just, just giving it all of this, I think that I, I did my muscles in. It was just phenomenal. It was just pure Fulham. And I have to say here now, I don't know how many people would, re- would realise this, Jean has got so much time even today for Fulham Football Club mm. and the fans. Uh, it's such a shame he's not been able to say a, a proper farewell. Oh. So that's something that ought to be sorted out in future. Not so much a farewell, but a re-hello or whatever. I, I was surprised on so many levels, and that was down to Bill Muddyman. Bill Muddyman sorted that out for me, and uh, I can tell you he enjoyed that weekend as much as anybody. Uh, <laughs> I bet he did. I bet he really, did. really laid back, really, really enjoyable, and uh, yeah, top man, top man. Well, it sounds like you've had um, quite the history with Bill. And of course, um, there's been times where you've been on different sides, but it sounds like uh, in latter years, you were very much on the same sides. And uh, I think those words that you said at the beginning, that without that board of directors, there would have been no Fulham Football Club. And I think we all have to be grateful for that because... Oh, no doubt, no doubt about that. It's something that has been passed from generation to generation. And there's there's one thing that we all have in common it is our love for FFC and it yeah, sounds like nice. Bill was part of uh, a, a, gr- a group a group of gentlemen that were very much at the heart of, of keeping Fulham at Fulham so um, um, David thank you so much for, for sharing your memories of Bill and of course uh, all our best wishes to uh, to Bill and his family absolutely um, who for whom it must have been a, a pretty tough couple of months yeah um, David thank you for very much being on Fulhamish oh it's an absolute pleasure always Sammy thank you We will return after the Leeds game on Monday uh, to discuss everything that happened in the match. So thank you very much for listening. Come on, you whites. (laughs) 